Blog Talk Radio. So great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin. To where you belong.
Welcome, Brother Haki. Ms. Haki Kamafi from Shoki. Carrying on with African awareness, and of course, you know, Brother Africa, my thing is all about institution building. But I got to say beforehand, Brother Africa, one of the things I find extraordinary in, in this, uh, this American society is that when we talk about uh, deception and hardship, those two things tend to go hand in hand in relation to the U.S. policy. So whether we're talking about economic, social, or political policy, those two words seem to be imminent uh, when we have those kind of discussions. So this, this, this nexus between deception and hardship is something I think people have to think long and hard about, particularly when we talk about the kind of things that are taking place in American society. But having said that, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out. Now, the emerging dystopian world of the U.S. modern chaos and violence is rooted in a world of economic markets in a disdain for critical commentary. Orwell's book, 1984, is quickly gaining relevance for younger generations, but the horrors depicted in this book does not come close to encapsulating the tangible horrors unfolding right before our eyes. Narratives in this book could never convey the extent to which surreptitious planning and organizations are so self-invested, even acknowledging the potential destruction of the planet and life are not sufficient enough to dissuade a course of action guaranteed to form an Armageddon the aspirations of a small cobble of capitalists against the interests of the larger majority of the world. Recently, the National Intelligence Council issued a report pertaining to threats to the U.S. In 2017, two years prior to the, excuse me, let me, let me back up the Africa. Okay, all right, here we go. Recently, the National Intelligence Council issued a report, which it does every four years, which publishes predictions pertaining to threats to the U.S., in 2017, two years prior to the emergence of COVID-19, the intelligence body predicted the COVID-19 pandemic. This prophetic analysis is intriguing in that such an analysis has to be based on scientific factors. The quantifiable analysis, which implies the COVID-19 virus will manifest itself as a pandemic, seems oddly construed, given on average five viruses a year are transferred from animals to humans, but none are designated with the potential for a pandemic. So why this particular virus allegedly from a bat viewed as with pandemic potential? Historically, characterizing COVID-19 as a potential pandemic is problematic for two reasons. First, ascertaining its genetic makeup has to be assessed by looking at the virus under a microscope to assess its genetic material to assess the one or two strategies viruses use to replicate inside cells. Unless the National Intelligence Council has X-ray vision, assessing the potential impact of COVID-19 allegedly unknown in 2017, will be impossible to achieve. Secondly, in 1967, the Marbury virus was identified from a lab in Germany. Ebola Marbury virus caused high fever and bleeding throughout the body, resulting in organ failure or death. By the year 2000, Marlboro had achieved a mortality rate of 100% in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Despite high mortality rates in Western and Central Africa, Marbury virus was not elevated to global pandemic status, despite the very real danger the virus represented. Perhaps someone can explain the very different responses to viruses capable of imperiling the world. One confirmed the other dubious. Now, suspicions are further aroused by the fact that estimated 1.7 million viruses in existence all behave as viruses, and characterizing their potential for a pandemic before assessing their molecular makeup, structure, or genetic material would make it difficult to assess is potential for a pandemic, not to mention most viruses from animals and humans result in illness, not death, according to the Public Health Emergency Collection. The fact the National Intelligence Council was able to state COVID-19 will be a pandemic in 2017 
when COVID-19 became known in 2019, two years before COVID's emergence, begs the question, was the National Intelligence Council assessment of COVID-19 based on observation of COVID-19 samples or was information on COVID-19 predetermined? This question is pivotal because around the release date of COVID-19's potential for a pandemic, researcher Barry Sherman, along with his wife, were killed in Toronto, Canada. Sherman allegedly was involved in testing hydrochloroquine, the malaria drug, to treat COVID-19 that proved effective in reducing mortality rates associated with COVID-19. Now, for some, this is too speculative, so let's move on. Now, this portion of commentary brings us to the material, to material imperatives that underpin U.S. policy, <coughs> political policy, and the inevitability of the destruction associated with this policy. That imperative involves the illusions of economic growth. Economic growth is a series of smoke and mirrors designed to conceal stealing the wealth by the rich while creating the perception among the masses. Social costs affiliated with destroying the planet is good because such activities bring growth despite the adverse impact on the planet. Oil exploration, fracking, deforestation, militarization should be pursued because without these business adventures, growth is stymied and a GDP would be adversely impacted. Ironically, GDP is the best barometer for assessing growth, but like most economic indicators, it is more illusionary than most. Computing GDP or the gross national product is a U.S. in the U.S. is three parts deception and one part more deceptive. Utilizing annual rate percentage or the ARP as its calculus conceals the erroneous nature of economic growth. ARP or annual rate percentage takes the growth of the economy over three month period, which is a quarter. Multiply the level of growth over that period, and then multiply by four. So, for example, let's say if economic growth is a quarter is one percent. By multiplying that one percent by four, we get we get an economic growth for the year of four percent. The next quarter, perform the same magic trick, provided the growth is in a negative range. The bottom line is GDP numbers are inflated, given the impression determined economic regime is working well. The GDP numbers can be further manipulated by Understanding inflation, making it appear business and consumers are enjoying a mutual relationship where both benefit from a thriving economy. But the more insidious aspect of this economic deception is the harm inflicted upon 90% of the U.S. population. Implicit in this economic statistical use of lies is undergirded by a lazy affair philosophy that discourages government intervention in the marketplace. Following the philosophies of people like Adam Smith, Thomas Malthus, and John Stuart Mills, the obligation of capital is to capital only. The enrichment of the wealthy that takes precedence over all other concerns, and ensuring poverty is of no concern, and ensuring poverty is of no concern. When the capitalists pursue economic policy of deindustrialization, sanctions, regime change, or, sub- or sabotage foreign economies, that relegates people, hundreds of millions of them, to starvation, colloquially known as famine. The impact spreads. In the U.S., such policies result in supply chain disruptions that that create food scarcity, i.e. empty shelves, culminating in higher food prices. If farmer once perceived as a global style issue is quickly approaching Western states with dire consequences. The fact no compassion is being expressed by elected leaders speaks to the indifference reflected toward the poor. If disinformation is fundamental to the function of capitalism, does it not follow acknowledging that human right atrocities may be impossible? If so, is it likely U.S. policy would change? And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother, Af- Brother Haki. We now we make our transition to Brother Moses, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. 
Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Uh, women hold up half the sky. That's why I support the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the, the struggle continues to be the effort to unite the many to defeat the few. The lies and distortions of the 1% cannot sustain them and their interests if we see if we organize and see through their their illusions. And I just thank you once again, Brother Apple, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And we now we're bringing Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Good good evening, Brother Africa and fellow Panelists, uh, blessings to you all and to our listening audience. Thank you very much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show. And I look forward to a wonderful educational experience and would encourage everyone to call in and share their thoughts and ideas with us. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. We have some participants who will, I believe, want to join us. We're going to ask the participants when we call all your last one number to briefly introduce yourself. Call 8193 8193. You're welcome to Africa on the Moon. 8193. Do you have it on mute? Huh? No. You should put it on mute. They can hear you. Huh? They can hear you. Can you speak up just a little bit more, Carla? Just a little background. Okay, let's go to caller. That's for number seven four four nine. Caller seven four four nine. Briefly introduce yourself. Okay, seven seven four nine. Going once, going twice. Okay, I guess this caller just want to listen. What we're going to do right now? We're going to take a quick uh, break with with our message, a revolutionary message as it relates to culture and music. And when we come back, what we want to do is discuss what's going on in your world and the community. That's right. If you have something to say, we can actually please dial 323-679-0841. Please hit 1. We will nod your last four numbers. But what we want to know is what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. Oh, 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 oh,
As long as you're a black 
But they can't take the African out of you. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. Today's program theme is our story, our struggle. We're going to talk about our story, our story, our struggle. We'd like to invite you to join in with us by calling 323-679-0841. If you have any comments, any views, any questions concerning this discussion, Please feel free to call in, and when you call in, hit number one, and we will acknowledge the last four numbers. So right now, we will continue down the road of liberation. As we discussed in our first segment, what's going on in your world and the community? And as far as all, we're coming back to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? Talk to us. Well, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things, you know, it seems to me uh, that when we when we talk about the kind of uh, uh, problems uh, affiliated with the society, it seems to me that uh, none of these problems are going to go away. 
It seems to me a certain amount of responsibility has to be shouldered by the African community itself in terms of addressing these wrongs. Uh, so clearly, you know, uh, when, I, when, I, when I think about these wrongs, you know, particularly when I think about racism, I think about a, a phenomenon that's been around for a long, long time, and the reality is that until people evolve, it's not going anywhere. And so I just got to thinking, so I thought I wrote this little piece in terms of this question around racism is why it's so important in terms of the not to give it so much uh, attention that the focus has to be in terms of creating institutions and organizations that is going to move us forward. But having said that, Brother Africa, I want you to listen to this uh, about the necessity of standing up. Now, racism is a fact of life in, that exists in the U.S. and throughout. Racism is a perfect mix of ignorance and power that fuels its existence. Coupled with insecurity, its ability to bind with sub- subjectivity inherent in humans makes racism all the more formidable. So why spend so much energy talking about that? So I've thought about three examples in which it's relevant in terms of us actually, you know, taking the lead in terms of actually dealing with the situation of this question of racism and not put so much emphasis on the, the actual act of racism itself. Now, when the soon-to-be racist clerk, uh, Crystal Clay Clanton, of the level of circuit says, fuck them all, I hate all blacks, she merely espouses an insecurity, an insecurity discussions could never ameliorate. Generally condemning an entire ethnic group consisting of people you don't know or interacted with, nonetheless advocating ill will against that entire population, fundamentally says something is lacking in her psychological makeup. Perhaps binding to the notion of whiteness sets her apart from humanity, she fails to incorporate an understanding of genetics, biology, anthropology, and geology into her understanding of life, relegating her existence as one who is weaponized to attack the other. As a lawyer, her lack of understanding ensures legal rulings not actually in opposition to fair play and the betterment of society. The African community efforts could be better spent creating conditions in the community to combat or blunt any laws that potentially could adversely impact the aspirations of the community. Discussions around the unequal application of law is well documented, and any additional discussion on injustice seems pointless since the law itself, according to strict constitutionists, of the Constitution is predicated on the debasement or the abuse of those without economic power. So the pertinent question is, why focus on the obvious manifestation of racism? Now, secondly, the state of Alabama is in the process of of executing a mentally disabled African whose IQ estimated to be 67. In order to justify the execution of Willie Smith, 51 years of age, the prosecutor claimed his IQ was 72. 72 was the preferred number because in Alabama, an IQ rating of 70 qualifies defendants for the death penalty. This reprehensive strategy was followed by a declaration by prosecutors that 2002 Supreme Court ruling abolishing the death penalty for the mentally disabled was not applicable because Smith was sentenced prior to 2002. Sanctioned by Alabama's appellate court, the long history of legal precedent establishing denial of rights for African people has been on display since the beginning of the republic. Prior to Reconstruction, legal precedent established convict leasing. Convict leasing was established to ensure cheap labor was available. Cheap labor was provided by locking up African people for alleged infractions, thereby forcing Africans to provide labor without compensation. Film lasted until the late 1920s. Convict leasing was preceded by black codes specifically to limit African freedom and coerce Africans to provide cheap labor, similar to prison labor today. Often Africans were compared to sign labor contracts or risk going to jail. Keep in mind, the black codes were innovated at a time Africans were supposedly free after construction began in 1866. 
<clears throat> now, legal precedent denying African civil rights, and thirdly, legal precedent denying African civil rights persisted until 1964 civil rights laws. Ironically, passage of the law, despite passage of the law, the horrific treatment offered afforded African people persists today. Unemployment, poorly funded schools, access to health care, mass incarceration continues to be a concern to African people. If law is the solution, one would think the historical wrongs committed against Africans would cease. Instead, the structural institutions that embody the oppression of Africans persist, while the legal establishment's laws only minimally impact the institutions. Because these institutions are not affected broadly by the law, ticks of oppression remains unchanged. If structural changes to the institutions are viewed as anarchy by political elites, the reality is the possibility of implementing law that ends discrimination against Africans is impossible. If law itself does not hold out hope for the redress of systematic wrongs committed against Africans, the onus has to be African people to innovate communities and institutions that empower themselves and show their future for the children. Again, I ask, does focusing on the self-evident improves the material conditions of Africans or should determine resolve inform our strategies? And lastly, corporate belligerence has magnified threefold in its attempt to, man- to man- maintain dominance. Innovators of plans specifically to direct democracy have blocked any attempt to foster corporate accountability or distribution of wealth to the, to the poor is met with, with great resistance and strategic planning aided by right-wing politicians in both Republican and Democratic parties. Of course, the vitriol directed toward the masses is not solely the domain of right-wing corporate agenda, but is also intricately linked to Democratic party operatives, ostensibly on the left. The hostility exemplified by the Democrats' different style but the impact on the people's lives is unmistakable. Democrats are currently proposing a $3 trillion tax increase on poor people, elevating the tax rate from 21% to 26.5%. Unlike the low low corporate tax rate, which is marginal, or tax income based on level of wealth that's afforded loopholes, the poor enjoy no advantage, no such advantage, and must pay an effective tax rate that not only increases poverty but exacerbates unemployment. This, this party of the people refuses to raise corporate tax rates, which would benefit the economy, but tax poor people, which consists of many of the most vulnerable people in society. The same party that has been eerily silent on the undercounting of Africans during the census of 2020, despite the ominous outcomes of lack of government resources or, or financial services needed by the underserved communities, uh, these kind of policies persist in the minds of Democrats. If these politicians are representative of the hopes and dreams of the people they serve, they clearly they are failing to do their jobs. If such policy endorsements negatively impact impoverished communities, what is the point for voting for them? It should be abundantly clear that the interests of most politicians lie with corporate interests. Once, the understand, once that understanding is intimately understood, the only alternative is the organization of communities. So what's, the, so what's stopping us? And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll make our transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, this week we saw the situation in Virginia is critical to the, the which way the country is going to go um, in terms of the election of the governor there. Um, we have a, a, a redneck. Um, running Youngkin, and uh, he's, he's part of the fascistization process that Trump is trying to continue, and hopefully the voters will turn out and defeat this this um, reaction 
reactionary. Meanwhile, Cuba, I like to remind people that Cuba needs the, us to stop the blockade, the, the embargo on, on it, and uh, and it was Cuba who fought with the MPLA in Angola, which broke the backs of the South African army and led directly to the release of Nelson Mandela. And we must never forget that, the, the historical um, contribution that the Cuba has given to the struggle of, against racism and uh, imperialism. And so that's one more reason we should be supporting the uh, lifting of the embargo around Cuba. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I, there was a tragic accident worth mentioning. Uh, James Baldwin, um, Alex Baldwin, um, killed someone in New Mexico uh, on a on a set of a movie theater, uh, a movie project or whatever. And uh, I think that was interesting. That doesn't happen that often, but uh, that's that's worth noting that something happened this week. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Mosey. Next we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Sister Eleanor. Uh, thank you, uh, Brother Africa. You know, an interesting uh, report uh, was uh, issued concerning the state of Maryland by an oncologist concerning breast cancer and in the state of Maryland. And unfortunately, uh, African Americans are those that uh, are perishing more often from breast cancer than anyone else in the state. Now, I mind you that breast cancer isn't something that only affects women. It also can affect men as well. So men and women, African uh, men and women, African-American men and women are dying disproportionately from breast cancer. But what was interesting about the study was it found that there were social factors impacting um, uh, the loss of African-American life. Well, I might add before I continue that uh, African-Americans make up a disproportionately large number of deaths in the state of Maryland, but made up uh, uh, a very small, uh, relatively small number of of, uh, citizens in terms of the population of the state of Maryland. The people were... um, Uh, oncologists were marking patients as no-shows, and in effect, these people did not have uh, any means of going to their oncology appointments, whether it's uh, surgery, uh, chemo, or radiation, other than public transportation. It found that there were social inequities in that a majority of the female cases were households where there were single women, and often even single women with children. And uh, the third social factor was the the job uh, classifications of these people. They were very hard workers, but they were a part of the underworking class. You know, these uh, jobs where when you become employed, 
it's understood that in order to feed your family, you're going to need food stamps, Medicaid, and housing assistance because your job doesn't pay you a livable wage, allowing you to provide housing, food, and insurance for your family. So the entire U.S. Uh, economy is set up on having working the working poor uh, depend on these resources. So these persons were dependent on these resources. But in addition to doing these jobs that left them with such uh, dependency on government resources, these jobs uh, were inflexible in granting them leave to uh, make these medical appointments. And then the fourth factor uh, that it reported was the lack of social support within the community from either family or friends, but just a lack of community support. So it was really phenomenal when uh, this oncologist stated four social factors rather than environmental factors that were impacting uh, the life expectancy and the possibility of surviving breast cancer in the state of Maryland. Uh, in addition, the pandemic continues to uh, rage on globally. And uh, I agree with Brother Robert that we really, as a as a community, have to urge our elected rep- representatives to uh, end the embargo against Cold War days of the Cold War days of the '60s are long over. And uh, we need to pay attention to the world today. And uh, the uh, main thing is that uh, the environment, Mother Earth, look around at the rain, the rains, the forest fires, the floods, just these horrible things happening on planet Earth. Mother Earth is screaming. We need to reduce our global footprint, we need to compost, recycle. Uh, Don't even get in your car if you're not carpooling with someone. Just let's cut back on all carbon emissions. And uh, um, there was also something interesting in terms of uh, solar development, and they were using a uh, uh, product from the sea that was helping to produce uh, uh, reduced carbon production. And I I found that also very interesting. But thank you. My week has been a great week, and I am concerned about the health of the earth as well as the health of our people. And this means uh, all people, including African people, the African diaspora, but all of God's people, uh, whether they are black, brown, red, yellow, or white, it's time for us to stand up and unite and protect Mother Earth and each other. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Sister Noah. If we go on our break, with uh, our rubbish in a break, we see if call will come back to call number 8193. We can come back to that call 8193 to see if they would like to share anything that's going on now with our community. Call 8193. 
The mic is yours. What's the last four numbers on your phone? Um, uh, it's, uh, one Eight one nine seven. Eight one nine seven. Eight one nine three. Eight one nine three. That's my phone. Oh, All right, thank you, Carla. Hi, family. We listen to Africa on the news. We're in the seat. We're gonna take the heat. As we define it, we're gonna stand behind it. What we're gonna do is take a revolutionary culture break. When we come back, we can continue to discuss what's going on in our world and community. When we come back, I would like to pose this question to our panelists. And if you'd like to weigh in on it, please call in at 323-679-0843. That's the correct number. I can jog up my numbers. 323-679-0843. 0841 call in and this is the question when we return back from our break the question is is feel the word feel is it stronger than love I listened to an interesting documentary about uh, Tupac Shakur when, when he was last so called incarcerated he made a real interesting statement in terms of the behavior of our people and based on his experiences you know sometimes their actions Based on fear, become more powerful than love. You know, we often say love is the most powerful force in the world, but I'm just wondering about that. I like to give my panelists uh, perspectives. Is fear stronger than love? Think about that when we come back. We'd like to have your feedback. This is Africa on the moon. If I had all the money in the world, what would you do with it?
chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. Yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit. 
did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 24th day of October, year 2021. Our theme tonight is our story and our struggle. We're going to talk about our theme in the context of our experiences. And we'd like to share with you and invite you to come and join in with us by dialing in 323-679-0841. Hit one and we'll acknowledge your last four numbers. Before we went on our revolutionary culture break, we posed a question to our political panelists and And that question was, you feel stronger than love. You know, when we talk about our story and our struggle, we talk about this concept of emotions and feelings. We know that it has a long history of loving and a long history of at a certain time living in fear. And we were looking at recently this documentary you know, interview his brother Tupac was talking about his life experiences as it relates to his struggle with his people. And he made a real interesting statement. He made several interesting statements. I'd like to get a panelist's perspective on the various statements. And one of them was, feel stronger than love. I find it interesting when we tell our story and our struggle. Both of them have played, both of them have played a major role in terms of behavior of our people. So, Brother Hockey, start with you first. Give me your articulation. How do you view this question? Do you believe that fear is stronger than love? What is your position on that? Or either how do you equate and deal with the two? How do you tell the story of fear and love as relates to the struggle of our people? Brother Hockey. Yeah, well, Brother Africa, that's a a very difficult uh, question to answer. To a large extent, um, which is strong is going to depend on the individual. And I don't think you can raise it to a group level in terms of, you know, its, it's potential impact, whether it be fear or love. But I think, but generally speaking, I think if I were to generalize, I would probably say uh, when it comes to most people, probably, um, uh, probably fear is a stronger motivator than love. And I say that because I think one of the things is that when we think about fear, we, we, take, we think about something that's definitive. We talk about something that's, something that potentially has substance. In that context, and we've talked about in terms of um, fear relationship, you know, to, to, to materialism. One of the things, one of the ways in which people are, are, are kept in check, one of, the way, one of the ways society controls people is through uh, the threat of taking away those things that they value. In the context of a capitalist America, we've got to understand that the things of value are those material things. 
So we talk about things like money, uh, big houses, uh, uh, nice cars, uh, uh, the kind of community you live in. For, uh, for most Americans, those things are very, very important. In fact, just the threat of picking those things from most people is enough to encourage them to toe the line. So I think in that context, clearly, you know, the, the question, I think the question comes down to fear being much stronger motivator than love. But in terms of love, because love, the thing about love, love is affiliated with ideas. And to the extent that, 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 that love uh, uh, resonates with people, to a large extent it's going to depend on, depend on people's consciousness, uh, people's uh, social development, uh, or even people's affinity uh, uh, for religion. Those kind of things, those kind of uh, subjective kind of things, are those things that gives meaning to life. Uh, to the extent that you embrace those kind of uh, subjective feelings, uh, sort of clarify your willingness to embrace love at the expense of fear. Uh, now, the thing is that we history, historically, when you look at it in terms of you know the, the, the struggles of African people, clearly um, religion played a big part in terms of moving people forward who are willing to face all kinds of dangers, knowing that the, the, the inevitable outcome is going to be using incarceration or death. But nonetheless, they persist in terms of trying to bring about real change. So it's this, 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 so it's this desire or just understanding this relationship between the unseen and the seen, which really motivates them in terms of doing what they do. And so therefore, they can be in a position to actually see that to pursue the material uh, way of life is to be, in the long run, counterproductive in terms of, uh, in terms of things they hold dear. And because their whole life so important, that to embrace materialism is to say that you, you support the idea of the ending or the, or the elimination of life. People who are spiritually minded, people who are conscientious, uh, people who practice religion, uh, to them such an idea will be odious. They simply can't fathom an idea, a situation where you put uh, or where you elevate the potential for death over all those things, the wholesome, all those things that bring meaning to life. So in that context, you know, to the extent that people people uh, accept love being a stronger motivator than fear, then I think it pretty much is going to be epitomized by people who are uh, who are, are thinking on a much more higher level in terms of the relationship between the seen and the unseen. Uh, obviously, for people who don't believe in the unseen, then this whole question in terms of love becomes problematic, because if you think that your existence is here and now, and after you're dead, it's, that's it, it's just, there's nothing else then, of course, you have a great affinity toward materialism. And so, therefore, you do what you, you do whatever, regardless of the atrocities committed in order to obtain materialism. But I think the, the exact opposite is true of people who are spiritual, who understand that, you know, there is a price to pay in terms of, you know, elevating materialism over love. Because if you elevate materialism over love, of course, you get the destruction. So, it, so it's better to elevate the love over the, over the, over the fear because by elevating the love, you prolong uh, existence, and so therefore, it's, it's, it's not only existence in terms of the spiritual plane. I mean, the physical plane, but for for those who are spiritually minded, the existence in the spiritual plane. And so, therefore, I think clearly, you know, it depends on the individual in terms of what, who's elevate, which which stronger motivation, fear or love. But that's my view, brother Africa, and I close with that. Thank you, brother Haki, brother Moses. What's your take on the position? Is fear stronger than love? Well, let me say, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And, you know, I think, you know, that fear, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, as President Roosevelt said. Uh, We 
we are faced with uh, fascism and and uh, opposition, and we we must have a sober mind and a sound mind and and understand what we're dealing with and deal with it realistically. There's no room for fear. Fear. There shouldn't be any room for fear. Love casts out fear. Uh, so you know we. We, uh, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love for the people. And so, you know, the masses united will never be defeated. So there's nothing there's nothing to fear uh, other, other, than a, other than a respect for the opposition, a respect for the enemy, a respect for the seriousness of the, of the struggle. Uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't be motivated by fear. Uh, I think you know there's there's a lot to be learned about about the struggle and who's who and what's what. And so we have to do a concrete analysis of concrete conditions and and face reality. You know, we don't run away from it, but we face it and deal with it. And so you know, fear. Fear is seen in that context of a, of concern for the danger of the situation, you know. But but uh, we shouldn't be motivated by fear. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, where do you stand at when it comes to the position that fear is stronger than love? Fear is stronger than love. Where are you at when it comes to that position, Sister Eleanor? Well, brother. Brother Africa, I think that uh, as Brother Moses uh, and Brother Akeem have both stated, love is what motivates the revolutionary. Love is what motivates uh, uh, a mother to protect her children. Love is what motivates uh, 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 us more often than fear. And and when we live in fear, I can't imagine it. Uh, people, working class people, do so much out of love. There's so much insecurity, so much limitations, but no one ever thinks of that. They just think about caring for each other and and what's best for community. So... Uh, fear obviously isn't uh, motivating anyone right now. If so, we would all stop, and the big corporations would all stop drilling oil, uh, mining for gas, because they can see what it's doing to the earth, and that within the next few decades, the only place habitable on earth will be the global south and you'll begin to but but people aren't motivated by fear they're motivated by greed many things but i think that uh love is a a motivating factor and i don't doubt that depending on your circumstances fear can cause you to have a certain reaction or response but i do know and i was thinking when you were asking the question of 
indigenous women when uh, their children were going to face enslavement, that they rather sacrifice their children before they have their children, sacrifice their lives and their children's lives rather than to face enslavement. Or when I think about uh, uh, Toni Morrison, I believe, wrote the uh, fictional novel called Beloved, and it's a fictional novel where there's a ghost hunting the home. And in effect, the ghost is the child that the lead character had murdered rather than have her child face the life that she had had. So, you know, uh, apparently love and faith in things unseen and unknown but believed to be motivate us more than anything else. And uh, I don't know how to place fear. And fear, fear, I think, stops us from seeing, stops us from experiencing, stops us from knowing. For example, someone gives you a horrible diagnosis and you're facing uh, the fear for your life. You might not see and be aware of alternative treatments and other things because fear uh, blinds you from reality. So I think love is uh, the optional uh, behavior that most, most motivates us. You know, love for our families, love for our community, love for our for the earth, love for humanity, love for the arts, love of science. But I don't see fear of art or science or family motivating us very much. But definitely love is a motivating factor in terms of modifying human behavior. But who am I? It's just my opinion and love is What's motivating? Y'all know it. that's your opinion. You can stick by it. We got you. All right, y'all listening audience. This is Africa on the Move. We're discussing the issue. Is fear greater than love? Not greater. Um, let's phrase it correctly according to Tupac. Fear is stronger than love. Fear is stronger than love. We'd like to hear your views and comments. You can do this by dialing in 323 Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So we have a caller who has been waiting. I guess we want to speak to this issue of this question of feel, strongly love. We will bring this caller in to welcome him or her to Africa on the Move. Caller, your last four numbers are 0673. 0673, caller, welcome to Africa on the Move. Your comments. Caller, yeah, 0673, yeah, the mic is yours. Yeah, 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 hold up, Africa. Uh-uh. I'm kind of circling okay. my speaking, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't like, I'm not a linear, linear type of person. I'm kind of circling my speaking, right? The same argument the sister made for love is the same argument you can make for fear. Uh, Africans threw themselves um, over, over, overboard because they know that, that their child um, um, would be subject to slavery. So that's, that's our love, right? But it also does, it was also the same argument for fear. You did it because you were fearful of what would happen to the child, right? So instead of me picking one over the other, right, um, 
uh, one of them got, got more stronger when you deal with senses. We said senses, we take about five senses. The ones, the external senses, eyes, sight, hearing, touch, smell, they help you see the outside world. But you got inner senses too, like equilibrium, uh, um, chill, hunger. They let you experience things on the inside world. So fear is just as strong as love. Love, we in this society, it's like this ecstatic type of emotion and feeling, right? But love should be uh, um, unconditional, right? But it's usually not. Usually when something goes wrong or you or you think somebody might hurt you, right? Love um, takes a back seat then, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think you had to have motivating factors to help you to be. I don't think that stuff just should be dealt in a vacuum, right? How you going to have love if you don't have motivating factors that's going to help you to be? You know what I mean? You make one love that brother on the side of the track, but the brother on the side of the track trying to kill you. So now fear steps, steps, steps in. You know what I mean? When it comes to, to these vaccinations, when it comes to, to, to all type of things, right? Fear sets in, and fear didn't set in as a, as a result of a vacuum. You have historical analysis of what has happened to you as a people, right? That's the reason fear sets in. So in order for fear to, 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 to change, there had to be motivating factors to help it to be. In order for love to sustain itself, there has to be motivating factors to help it to be right. I'm not I wouldn't I can't even get into which gonna be which is more stronger than the other. When you think about terms of survival and in the West it they taught that uh first law of nature is self preservation. The first law of nature is group preservation. Out in nature, right, you see they try to survive other group. So now out of love this bear, for example, is going to put himself in, 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 in danger to, be, to protect the other bears, right? That's love. But they're also doing it because they're fearful of what's going to happen if they don't do that. So I really can't put one in over the other, right? But, but you have to have motivating factors in order for love to work. And you also have, have to um, take away those things that would make one be in fear in order for fear to change into love. So I so I think it'd be kinda of, uh when 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 you deal from African perspective, right, to be more circular than, than than linear, right? Picking one over the other, right? But I know where I, I hope you play what Tupac said because it comes from an old Machiavelli thing, right? Uh, which is the strongest love or fear, right? And the answer was, I rather everybody love me, right? But if I had a trust between the two, the answer would be fear. Because when you was growing up right, you did your parents would like it better if you did right because you loved them. But you know good and well you did right because you feel that when mama or daddy came home from work, you had their belt waiting for you. So that's my little part to add to the conversation. Carl, so, your points are where I take and I do too also agree is you know, the two words very closely, um, they closely uh, resemble each other. It's like they both may be on extremes, but at the same time, we talk about dialectics, they both sort of complement each other. Uh, so it's interesting. I thought that was interesting, particularly since our theme tonight is our story and our struggle. And as you listen to Brother Tupac tell his story and his relationship to his people, he raised some fundamental issues that as, as it relates to the history of our people and the history of our struggles. And um, I thought that was interesting. Um, let's continue. A couple other things you said from this footage. If you go to YouTube and check them out, it's worthy to just listen to in terms of 
his sharpness of his observation of looking at his environment. You know, we all learn and get things based upon our environment, and um, he mentioned that he's a part of the environment, and we all are, and, you know, it creates who we are. One of the things he mentioned was his observation that he made a statement that the American government is the biggest gang in the world. Now, he looked at their behavior. He said the American government is the biggest gang in the world. Now, if people look at the behavior of the American government, it acts and functions like a gang. Brother Haki, what you make out today, what you make out as relates to that analysis by Brother Tupac? Is there any relevance um, there when you come to do analysis of the behavior of the government and behavior of gangs? No, I I, I, I agree. Uh, I think Tupac is, is spot on. Uh, no question about that. America is organized as a gang, precisely as a gang, and more importantly, they're thugs. They're not just a gang, there's gang of thugs. And it's important to understand that because when we talk about this question in terms of fear, one of the things we understand, when we talk about U.S. policy, uh, when we talk about national policy or geopolitics, uh, it's all rooted in fear. They understand that they hold a certain, a, a certain things, uh, certain, certain variables people want to have access to. People want the, the, they want the wealth. They want the material possessions. Uh, they want the status that comes with having the material possessions. The United States government, the intelligence community, understands that. And so as far as they're concerned, so they understand the motivational impact of fear. And so, therefore, as gangs, they're more suited in a much better position strategically as a gang to, to implement the kinds of fear uh, which people tend to respond to. And the whole thing is I think we have to understand, Brother Africa, so when we talk about this question in terms of fear versus love, one thing is we have to understand is that in terms of, you know, how human beings uh, uh, deal with information, there's a process that takes place. In that process, there has to be a starting point or the catalyst. And that catalyst is going to be the, the, the starting point in which people, you know, in which people start from. So if you grow up in a capitalist society and everything around you is based upon material, materialism or pursuit of materialism, as a young person, you learn very, very quickly that the, the most important thing in the world is the pursuit of materialism. Well, after the fact, you know, once you, once you come to believe that materialism is, in fact, the end all and be all of existence, then it's not very, it's not very difficult to see that you would always, you always see fear as being primary. Because if you didn't toe the line in terms of, and, and, and the line in terms of what the government wants you to, what, what government wants you to do, then the possibility of losing those things that are so valued, so valuable to you, those things that you've been taught are of value that you totally line. And so, therefore, I think this whole question in terms of fear is, is, is relevant. So even though they both exist on, in a parallel plane, but the reality is that there has to be some catalyst. One has, one, has to, one, has to, one has to energize the other. I don't think they can simultaneously exist on two different planes. I think one has to serve as, 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 a, one has to serve as, a, as, a, as a, a, a catalyst to bring into existence the other. So as a child growing up who the religious house and the only thing the parents teach is love, harmony, respect for the creation, all those kind of wholesome kinds of ideas. And the kid grows up and those things assuming that the kid continues church or the mosque or the or the or the or the or the, or the temple or wherever the individual goes, but assuming that they keep up with those practices or those belief systems, then the the, the impact of the broader world has relatively little impact in terms of how they feel about what respect to this question of love. They're more apt to still see love as being the catalyst in terms of in terms of you know how how life should be organized. 
It doesn't mean that they can't feel fear. But just keep in mind, one of the things that's very interesting in American society uh, right now, people are scared. People are scared to speak out now. They're scared. And the question is, why are you scared to speak up? You keep, you keep insisting that this is democracy, that you've got a freedom of speech here. But yet you're scared to stand if they spoke out the potential ever to impact them in terms of their pursuit of material things, a job, making money, or maybe some type of uh, some type of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, some type of contract they're pursuing with the government in terms of funding. They're afraid that if the word gets out that they somehow are conscientious, then it undermines their opportunity to to avail themselves of what they seek. And so, therefore, so in that context, I think that when we so so, so in that context, I think even though they may be even they may be guided by love, they understand on 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 some level uh, that the question in terms of fear is appropriate simply because it gets in the way in terms of them achieving what they want to achieve. It doesn't negate the love. It simply means that in this particular, this particular situation, it, the, the, the catalyst was, was, had always been fear. I mean, the catalyst has always been love, but the fear comes into place because it does impact their, their, their existence. So I think, Brother Africa, I, I think that Tupac is absolutely correct. When we talk about the U.S. being a, 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 a gang, a, a, a nation, of, a, a, a gang, uh, yes, it is a game. It's a third game. And uh, the problem is that no, most people in America don't want to see it for what it is. But those people who clearly see America for what it is, they understand it is a thuggish game. Uh, it's, a, it's a game. And, and when you think about the, how the wealthy protect one another, engage in criminality all the time, and what happens? They protect each other all the time and don't give it a second thought. It's just natural. And you ask yourself that they operate like a game. Uh, so clearly, you know, uh, Tupac is correct. So I think in the context of America, yes, I think it's a game. I think in a, in a much broader context, we start talking about geopolitics, some of the inter, interrelationships between Western states, they also operate as a game. You know, uh, they set the rules. Uh, they, they just determine the values uh, in which they operate. And they adhere to those values and those rules. And they don't vacillate. They can, they're consistent. So the injustices that the American government inflicts on the people in here, the people, the, the European governments inflict the same injustices against the people in Europe. So clearly, uh, Brother Africa, I, I think that uh, Tupac is correct. And this question in terms of gain, uh, it has to be, um, we, have to, we have to call it what it is. We must see the American government as a gain, as a thuggish gain, and, and not see them as somehow respectable individuals who happen to have suit and ties and wear expensive dresses, and we think that because they, you know, because they, 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 they dress extravagantly, they have some quality to, the, to them. Uh, in fact, when you look at their practices, they are very much a game. So I agree with Tupac totally. Brother Moses, where are you at on this question that Tupac stated that when you look at the behavior and history of the U.S. government, American government, they act and function as a game. He stated they are the biggest game in the world. Your response to that, to that position, Brother Moses? I think I think it's clear, um, you know, that uh, that you know we are run by uh, people who are in cahoots with each other and uh, look out for each other's interests and uh, and uh, support one or the other against the overall interests of the masses of the people. They sit in Congress and and vote and vote and uh, and collect their salaries and. Uh, no, it's clear when you look at um, when you look at uh, some other countries like uh, right now in Afghanistan. I mean, uh, you know, it's easier to see them as a gang. Um, 
or or the gang that's in in uh, Haiti that 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 stole these Christian, that kidnapped these Christians. Uh, um, the U.S. is no no uh, is similar to those. I mean, it's just a a body of people who've who've come to power and uh, and uh, are, are lording their interests over the interests of the masses of the people. They're not looking out for the interests of the mass of the people. They're only representing their interests and uh, and uh, fattening their own pockets. And so, you know, it's easy to see them as a gang. Yes, I, I, I can easily see that as a gang. Um, the Democratic and Republican Party are uh, in control. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they are capitalists and... Uh, and hoard their interests over the rest of us. Thank you. Sister Eleanor, come and talk to us. Where are you at? Well, I um, I have to admit that I don't, uh, what I know about gangs I've read, and it seems that people who form gangs are usually people who are lack power and so uh, form gangs to create a, or, or lack family. So they form gangs to have a, a family and a support system. Um, you see uh, in the 20th century, early 20th century in this country, when, uh, you know, when uh, between 1900 and 1920, uh, 15 million whites moved to this country, uh, and uh, that's where the term, I think, uh, we're a nation of immigrants came from, uh, because all of the Americas otherwise are nations of immigrants from the tip of Canada to the bottom. But what you saw were little communities popping up, like Little Italy, um uh, Irish, Little Ireland. Well, at that time, those were considered undesirable whites. So they united and kind of formed uh, communities or gangs. And and then uh, in the uh, 80s, we heard about the gangs of L.A. And and, uh, Los Angeles being a huge uh, city with, at that time, with limited public transportation, people were interdependent on each other, and you heard about the different gangs in in, in L.A., and we saw, you know, with the uh, development of a new, wonderful new genre of music called rap, and uh, we saw gangs develop. So uh, definitely the U.S. government is organized. Uh, it's structural. But the rich and what's happening now with social media, I think, is about to really change the world because something someone said that was very interesting was people are afraid to speak up. And when we were talking about love and fear, I suddenly realized, yeah, I know, you're right. Because if you're fearful that you will be without something very essential, such as your life and staying alive, you do something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of doing. You or you won't say something when you would otherwise speak out. 
but you're fearful for your life. So therefore, you think about staying alive versus speaking out. So what do you do? Say nothing. So in terms of gangs, if gang (coughs) is to mean organized, then, yep, the U.S. government is organized. Now, what we've got to do is turn the House, the executive branch, and the judicial branch against the minority class, the wealthy class. Because right now, as Brother Moses said, we're not just fighting U.S. imperialism. We're just not a fight against the capitalists. Suddenly, we see around the world, and we saw one elected in this country, we see these authoritarian leaders popping up, and they have no loyalty to anyone but themselves. They need the resources of the rich, but you saw what Hitler did to them as well. So right now, the biggest crisis, as I say, uh, have said before in the world, is combating fascism. And uh, I would hope that uh, should be our focus. And in reference to whether or not um, the U.S. government uh, behaves as a gang, Tupac uh, was a genius. And clearly, you know, just like all genius, whether it's Shakespeare or Tupac or, or, uh, or W.D. Du Bois, they speak and they speak truth. And they speak truth to power. So I would say Tupac knew what he was talking about from experience. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. To our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. We're in the seat. We'll take the heat as we define it. We're going to stand behind it. If you have any views or comments you'd like to make, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841. Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last number. Please hit one if you have any comments you'd like to make for those who listen to the program. And one of the last points, as we talk about our theme, our story, and our struggle from a Tupac perspective, he made another really interesting point in which he stated that jails are big business. He said this whole concept of jails, they are big business. He talked about how Recently, in the last 10, 15 years, when they build jails, they put them out out in exclusive areas where that's the only entity in that community, and they have the whole community supporting, depending upon it, and living upon it. That is to say they have whole family members working at their jail just so they can survive as suspense incarcerating masses masses of our brothers and sisters. So, Brother Hakeem, the analysis, what you make of that? Here's this whole concept of jailing people is really a question about big business. And if so, that means going to be around for a long time. Normally, when you talk about money, Brother Haki, your take. Well, Brother Africa, you know, uh, earlier I talked about, you know, con- convict leasing. And the whole idea is to have available supply of, of labor. In colonial times, when they arbitrarily arrested African people, they did it because it was a, 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 a tool to use of coercion in which, you know, the, the choices were go to jail or give your labor up for free. So, therefore, it's always been very beneficial in terms of having, you know, captive uh, individuals as a source of labor. 
that's very, very clear. And one of the things that's very, very, very interesting is that when I when you go back to 1934 and you think about the Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he talked about the New Deal, one of the things that the the business community along with the political elites agreed is that African people by and large would be ex, um, eliminated uh, from participating in the expansion of jobs programs in this country. In other words, the government weren't free to employ African people. And so, therefore, the question becomes for, for them was, well, by not employing African people, then you have a surplus pool of people you can tap, uh, uh, you know, who, you, who, you know, not only would they serve as a, as, as a focus of keeping, you know, wages down, but if worse comes to worse, you can simply employ them at even a fraction of the wages that you would pay even others. So when you talk about jails and big business, it's very, very clear. So when the Constitution stipulates, you know, that the only time slavery can be enforced is when a person is incarcerated, it's a business arrangement. It's important that we, we, we understand it. It is big business. And keep in mind, one of the things that when we talk about big business is one of the things that uh, during, the, during the 80s and when the state started talking about budgets, uh, one of the first things they, 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 they talked about was the fact that privatizing prisons. Well, guess who talked about privatizing prisons? It was the capitalist class. They're the ones who pushed this notion in terms of privatizing prisons. They saw the big money in it. Now, historically, the states benefit, understood the benefits in terms of having labor, you know, uh, you know, uh, free labor to to build things. But corporations took it a step further. They said not only do we have uh, the opportunity in terms of uh, captive uh, audience in terms of building these products while in prison, but uh, we actually can have contractual agreements with the state, and we determine just how long they stay in prison. So if an individual goes in prison, say, for get a 10-year a ten year sentence, right? If that individual doesn't tell the line, if he or she gets charges while they're incarcerated, that private prison can extend the time that they are there. And so one of the things is that, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, the corporation is found upon is that they don't want these individuals to be released prior to their time in, their, 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 their time in prison. Uh, so when they say 10 years, corporations expect these guys to be here a minimum of 10 years. And so, therefore, the question in terms of big business is very, very clear. They don't make any bones about that. And a lot of them will tell you uh, that it's all about, it's about big business, and they'll tell you that. And so, you know, so Tupac is obviously correct. Um, and the thing is, Brother Africa, as far as, you know, you know with, this, with, this, with this formula change, no, no, it won't. It won't. Because you alluded to the fact that when you start talking about, you know, putting, you know, prisons and, uh, and rural locations, they do that specifically, for, not only because of the question in terms of space, but they also do it because, you know, they got a, a, they got a, a population out there uh, very conservative, who tend to be very conservative in terms of their outlook. And in addition to the poverty that they're confronted with, they tend to be very, very conservative. And so, therefore, they're more likely to toe the line. So when you talk about the kind of excesses, the kind of abuse that prisoners are condemned to once they're locked up, those individuals are more likely to turn look the other way because, number one, those people in prison don't look like them. They're not perceived to be like them. And so, therefore, they're more willing to look the other way in terms of these kind of abuses. And so the system understands that for them it's a win-win because you can pay these poor people, particularly these poor white folks, very, very cheaply. At the same token, you can commit all kinds of atrocities without fear that these poor white people are going to come back and expose what's really going on. There have been exceptions in which poor whites come out and actually tell what goes on inside the prison, uh, but it's not, uh, it's not as frequent as we would like it to be in terms of exposing what's going on behind the prison bars. But, but, but the bottom line, Brother Africa, yes, uh, building jails uh, is a big business, and it's not going to go anywhere. Carlos, we've been waiting patiently. 
We have a caller. We've been waiting patiently. We're going to bring you on that caller. That caller last four numbers are 9072. Caller 9072. Your question or comments, please. Caller 9072. The mic is yours. Hello, Brother Avatar and Channel. This is Mimi speaking from Washington, D.C. Uh, I wanted to make a comment. You were talking about love. I didn't know whether you were talking about platonic love or romantic love or family love or love for humankind. Um, I just wanted to know, could you let me know which type of love were you speaking of? Man, we talking about love any kind of way that you want to define it. You define what love you speaking of. Okay. Well, I I just wanted to share some information with you. Um, I I, I am a recently engaged lady, and uh, my fiance and I had a disagreement. And because I was fed up with his non-responsive and non-caring input, I told him that the wedding was over um, because I felt that if I'm going to be willing to invest myself and my time and trying to get another person's interest and concerns, he should have been able to invest his interest and time and get my input and my concerns. But it did not turn out that way. Now, I don't feel sorry for telling him um, the wedding is over. Because I feel like justification can be solved on this side of the ring and not the other side of the ring. I'm not going to enter into any commitment with anyone, and I have hesitation. Hesitation that makes me feel insecure and makes me feel uh I have no value in the relationship. And because I felt that way, that's why I said the wedding is over. I did not want to go any further because I felt like my my input didn't have any value. And that I was putting in more into the relationship than he was putting in. I don't know why uh, he was hesitant, uh, but I know that I was ready to make a full-hearted commitment, and I did not know whether or not uh, the apprehension on his part was due to his own insecurity about taking on the role of a husband and a care provider. 
I didn't know. Um, but I thought that by us being two adults, um, our decision making could have been resolved if he was willing to talk. But when I said the wedding was over, all his response to me was, okay. Well, that showed me that he was half-hearted. Okay, Kiki, can you sum up your (laughs) final thoughts in a minute or so? (laughs) Okay, my final thought is, I feel that any disagreement on this side of the ring can be resolved. Because on the other side of the ring, it leads to more disastrous actions. And I thank you for your time. And Kiki, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. And we will continue the discussion with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, where you way in. Tupac said this whole question of this particular society is coming to see jails or use jails as a form of big business. Your response to that, Brother Moses? Yeah, well, we we know we know um, that um, this big business. We've got the new Jim Crow has been written. Uh, mass incarceration in the USA has been written, uh, um, and there's been a lot of analysis of the of the of the prison industrial complex, and uh, and um, it is a big business. There's no question about that. Um, they're outsourcing. Uh, uh, um, to the prison complex, and the prisoners are are used as as la- labor, cheap labor, and um, and these corporations are profiting from. Um, this is well documented. There shouldn't be any argument about that. Uh, um, uh, even the telephone companies have uh, been making money off prisoners. Uh, uh, it's a whole uh, entrapment, and uh, it needs to, we need to set the captives free. Thank you. Sister Eleanor, talk to me. Talk to me, Sister Eleanor. Well, um, the prison industrial complex. Well, first of all, as I said a few moments ago, Tupac was a real genius and clearly ahead of his time. He identified the prison industrial complex as what it is. Uh, It's a a huge private industry now. Um, You see that, uh, as uh, Brother Hakeem said, they place prisons strategically in economically depressed communities so that the entire community is dependent on the prison for its survival. So, and it and it places them in economically depressed communities. So, economic depressed communities, there's a low education level because of limited economic resources. That leads to limited educational opportunities, and it's it's utilizing the the working class to advance the rich 
Now, this prison industrial complex, I remember in the late 80s or early 90s, I was looking at a a list of resource things that were produced in in prisons because I wanted to make sure I didn't buy from anybody that was using slave labor to produce anything that I purchased. And I found that Victoria's Secret was, for example, was utilizing prisoners to create this flimsy, very attractive working class lingerie and lotions. And I used to like this one apple scent lotion. Well, I've never had it in my hands again once I realized the prison industrial complex was producing it. But it is definitely a part of the mainstream economy. They are producing manufacturing goods uh, for uh, uh, major uh, uh, corporations throughout our country. And um, um, it isn't low-paid wages. These are slave wages. Because remember, in the industrial prison complex, as as Brother Moses says, the phone companies are making money off of the poor families trying to call their relatives and having to only make collect calls, things that are long since, things that are outdated. The, the prisoner's nutrition has to be supplemented by the commissary in the prison, and we see that tuna fish, uh, sardines, you know, high-protein foods cost them three times what they do in even the most depressed communities in the prisons. And we see um, uh, uh, toilet paper has to be purchased by the prisons. Uh, toothpaste, toothbrushes, everything is purchased by the prisoners if they are to have these resources. And clearly, Tupac was ahead of his time. The prison industrial complex is a reality. It's been defined as an industrial complex. That's the, that says it all right there. And it is unfortunate that the United States has the largest number of persons imprisoned on earth and that the disproportionate number of those people are are African-American, our African brothers and sisters, and I don't want to confuse people. Um, When I say African-American, the diaspora is filling up the jails in the United States. Native Americans are backing us up. And uh, it's it's an outrage. Now they'll take it. They can't help but take an egregious serial killer, whether he's white or not, or Timothy McVeigh, as he blows up a building, is on his way to jail. But the reality is, the prison industrial complex is uh, working hand to hand with the uh, capitalist corporations, and they're not they're not making peanut butter for. Uh, uh, a local market. They're, they are into the super capitalists. You know, uh, uh, they're not uh, producing uh, uh, underwear for a limited market in West Virginia or in Illinois or Arkansas. They're doing it mass production. 
for export as well as domestic uh, production. So it, it is a part of the of uh, the horrors of capitalism. And and to go back to what Brother Hakeem said, what happened after slavery? Says, I don't know. I'm going to give you 30 uh, more seconds. we got to take this other call and get on the phone, okay? And if that's the case, I'm going to use the 30 seconds to comment on Sister Mimi. I appreciate what she said. It's better to do it when she said this side of the ring, she means while the engagement is on rather than to do it after you're married and your whole family suffers through a divorce. So I understand if there's a conflict in a relationship, resolve it before you're married. Do it on this side, as she said, of the engagement, not after you're married. So work things out, folks, before you move on to become husband and wife. And, okay, let's continue yeah. that. Let's continue down this road as we talk about our theme tonight, our story, our struggle. We can go to Brother, let's see if we bring our brother back, 0673, 0673. Uh, your response to Tupac's position of how they're using j- jails as a form of big, big-time business. Your response, Brother, 0673. Right, first, of all, first, of all, yeah, first of all, I agree with uh, Hakeem wholeheartedly. I got two examples, but I'll save it to the end if, if you give me some time because I agree with what he was saying. But right now, to, to your question, right, I was trying to find a correlation between working on the job and slavery because slavery was so marketable, right, that I used it as a blueprint, and I'm sure they used it as, throughout everything, right? On your job, you got a boss. You got black buffers, you know, black supervisor who do the same thing that the white person does, the light-skinned and a person had was, was moved up. You did that on the plantation. Um, four acres, instead of four acres in a meal, you got four work a four hour week. You know the whole structure is the same. You give your sentence off not because they, they they love you. They give your sentence off because they trying to correlate that with the Bible on a day of rest. So everything is pretty much the blueprint that they follow is how they accept slavery. Now when you go into the prison system, you got remember the Fourteenth Amendment don't apply to them. It says slavery was abolished, except if you go to jail. So it don't apply to them, right? So what better way to have slavery than to have legalized slavery? Have it under the bar- under the banner of the United States Constitution, where you protect it. So once you're incarcerated, right, you don't, those rights are gone. You don't have these these rights, and they got and it's so sound. And what they're doing is that I was at a university one day, and they needed some furniture, and the lady said they were advised to get their furniture from prisons because it's cheaper. So that's how deep this thing is going, you know. So, yeah, that's it, 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 it's institutionalized. It's big business. It's institutionalized. And like I said, because they, they have no rights under the United States Constitution and they have no rights under the 14th Amendment because they've been incarcerated. So, yes, it's big business. But come back to me later, right, because I want to give examples of what Haki was saying how fear was so strong. Um, brother, we can let you go ahead and make that statement now. Go ahead and make that point now. All right. All right. Well, you got basketball players and people who say they love their body. They love their body. They're not taking the vaccine. Uh, uh, the vaccine. But when fear set in and they can lose their livelihood, they change their mind. And some might say they change their mind because they love a love a family, right? Still, what caused you to change your mind? You didn't stay true to what you believed in. Feel set in. 
So on a Donahue program one day, they asked this lady who's supposed to be a Christian woman, talk about Christian love, right? He said, if you got five children to feed and you lost your job, would you still to feed those children? And she said, no, I preach love. I, I wouldn't do that, right? He said, be honest. If you got five children to feed and you lost your job, would you still to feed those children? And she said, no. And Donahue said, let me give it to the real people up here because you ain't being truthful. And even these basketball players and all of those, right, if they ride the train all the way out, right, say, I'm not going to take this vaccination shot, and they end up homeless, right, fear going to set in, and you could do something to survive. You could do something to survive. So fear is very strong. I just want to, you know, I, I'll give an example of some of the things that Haki was saying. I was extrapolating for what he was saying about how strong fear is, and this government uses it very well. That's my point. Okay, thank you, Thank you, Carla. Right now, we are listening to Africa on the Moon. It's a show speaking to the powerless and the powerful. We come on weekly from 7 to whenever you get finished. We're here for you. P.M. Eastern Time. We speak truth to power. And what I'd like to do is make a couple quick announcements before we go on our rubber here culture break. And when we come back, we'd like to have our final thoughts. So we want you to spread the word that you can uh, hear this program every Sunday. Started at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. In terms of um, our upcoming trip to Cuba, for those who may not be aware of, we have um, reorganized the dates due to the difficulties of being able to go to Cuba based upon the U.S. blockade. We have changed the dates to July 23rd to 31st. So if you still want to join us and come with us, you have more time to get yourself together, but you must act now. Because we have limited seats and it's very difficult um, to um, get these seats because the availability of the planes are very limited based upon the U.S. policy for their blockade against Cuba. So make sure you contact the African Awareness Association at email African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. Please contact the African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. This is the first part of two parts. Um, program, our story, our struggle. We will continue to struggle next week, so please tune in and spread the word. Also, next week we have a really special book that has recently been released by dear um, supporter of ours, Brother Bob Brown with Pan-African Roots. We're going to talk a little bit about that book and its impact next week, and when we going to talk about it, we ask everybody who hear the voice of my sound to go out and support the brother, support yourself, support the movement, and learn about your people by purchasing at least one book in terms of supporting the movement and the participation and the contribution that Pan-African Moose is making to our daily lives in order for our people to move forward. We'll talk about that next week. So right now what we're going to do is we're going to take a station break. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back for part one of our story and our struggle, we're going to ask each of our panelists and participants to give us their final thoughts for the night. Remember, this is Africa on the Moon. And Michael Jackson told us when he told his story and his struggle, this is what he had to say. Listen carefully. Michael, they don't listen to us. Michael, Michael, 
have to say anymore. All I want to say is they don't care about us. When we talk about our story and our struggle, he put it real succinct. All I want to say is they don't care about us. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. If you would like to become part of our Africa on the Moon supporter fan club, please email us at Africa on the Moon 2 at Gmail, and we can tell you how you can do that. We need your help. We need your support. So come, let's do this thing together. Where unity, all things are possible. Again, this is part one of a two-part series on our story and our struggle. We're going to close out with our final thoughts with our participants and political panelists and analysts. So right now, we're going to close out with the final thoughts from Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for today's program. Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's been a wonderful show. I've, I've learned some, uh, and um, hopefully I've thrown in my two cents and someone got something out of that. Um um, I'm tempted. I'm, I, for some reason, I'm tempted to say we're born in a world of sin, shaped in iniquity, and come short of the glory of God. And um, the only perfect human was Jesus. And so we find ourselves in a world of in, in, iniquity and injustice. And um, and it's up to us to change the world and make make heaven on earth. Uh, and um, this is a task we are faced with. Um, we we shouldn't shy away from it, but we should we should grasp it and uh, and be about it. And so you know we have to end imperialism, sexism, racism, and uh, all class distinctions. And and uh, this is uh, easier said than done, but this is the struggle. And uh, I hopefully you know like a great revolutionary is uh, guided by great feelings of love and. And hopefully that will prevail. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We're going to that caller, 0673. You'll find the thoughts for the night, caller, 0673. Um, I, I had foster children in my house. My love, me offering a home, food, clothes, and shelter did not deter them from their destructive ways. Me providing consequences did. Remember, the same fire that gives you warmth also kills. So where you find love, you also find fear. In instance where the sister mentioned that she was engaged to marry, obviously she's in love. But there's also fear lurking behind the door. I appreciate it, brother, for giving me the opportunity to speak. Thank you, Carla, for your contribution to today's program. We now will go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, you'll find the thoughts for tonight. Sister Eleanor. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to participate. It's been another fantastic educational show. I just was want to close out with my comments that I wanted to make about Brother Akeem's statements concerning prisons. Well, the prison industrial complex is a reality. You can go to um, um, states all over this country are divesting uh, in their own prisons and sending their prisons to the privately owned institutions throughout the country. But we're facing great danger right now. You see, Governor Abbott is doing a repeat of the 19th century. As Brother Akeem said, in the 19th century, they developed these new pig laws. So 
I could owe you $50, Brother Africa. And you could say, well, Sister Eleanor, I'm arresting you because you owe me $50. And you determine how long I have to work to pay you that $50 off because you're charging me for room and board and food. And you also have the right to sell my labor if you wish. Now we see Governor Abbott in Texas giving individuals the right to earn 10 grand spying on their neighbors and uh, to be reimbursed by the state. And that reminds me of those pig laws that first made when there was a labor shortage in this country, first began to reinstate Africans as, as slaves through the prison process. Because in the after slavery with these pig laws where you didn't have to have a trial, a magistrate could find you guilty. So, you know, we now have someone, uh, a governor in the state of Texas telling folks that if you think your neighbor gave a ride to someone having an abortion, keep records and this and that, and we'll reimburse you up to 10 grand for telling us spying on your neighbors. So that kind of reminded me of that. And the uh, issue of using um, prison labor as uh, for production really began after slavery simply because there was a, a labor shortage after we in, enslaved people were set free. And so the only way to recoup or gain any control over the labor force was through incarceration. And it started out on a county uh, municipality kind of level, and then it became a statewide institution, and then it became a national institution all the way up into the 20th century. So you saw inmates across this country working on highways, clearing fields, doing all types of work because they had no right to negotiate a labor contract. So it was it was far more important than having a surplus labor economy because those surplus laborers, laborers, if hired, still have a right to organize. But prisoners, as the caller said, have no 14th Amendment rights. So they have no rights to organize, no rights to receive remuneration for their labor, nothing. So it is really time to wake up when you realize your state has closed the local prison and allowing a commercially owned prison to house the inmates from your state. Your neighbors are going thousands of miles away from home to an industrial prison complex to become the new slaves of the 21st century. So uh, I hope that we continue to discuss this issue of the prison industrial complex, global warming, and uh, combating fascism as we continue to fight against imperialism. And have a wonderful week, everyone, and thank you all for allowing me to participate in this evening's program. Thank you, Brother Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Good night, listener. Good night, Brother Moses and everyone else. Good night. Good night, message. We thank you. Brother Hackey, you found the thoughts for tonight. Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, first let me just say, Sister Mimi, hang in there, girl. You're going to be all right. Listen, uh, let me just uh, go back briefly in terms of something I stated earlier. 
uh, I was concerned about the $3 billion tax increase uh, put forth by the Democrats. Uh, anyway, when you talk about counterproductive economic policy, uh, this is probably the most counterproductive you can come. Um, you know, one of the things is that when you start talking about tax increase for the poor people, aside from obviously increasing poverty among more poor people, see, in essential, what you're doing, you're taking money out of their pocket, which means the disposable income that they have to support state businesses actually decreases, which means that you, on a state level, you do nothing in terms of uh, revitalizing the state's economy, which means that the people in those states are separate even more. So clearly it's, 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 it's counterproductive. On a federal level, ironically, you know, when you, when you think about in terms of all this, this tax increase on poor people, it's, it's not really going to be a, have a stimulus impact. Uh, you know, because the bottom line is that, you know, when they take their money, you know, from, from poor people, by and large, that money is going to be uh, uh, returned, uh, you know, to, um, to investors, which means that it never gets to the real economy in terms of actually stimulating the economy. So for that reason, it's further counterproductive. So one has to ask himself, if you're making these economic moves and they're counterproductive, if they're not stimulate, stimulating the economy, then why do it? I think one of the things we have to understand and be very, very clear on that when we talk about the revolving door with respect to uh, uh, business decisions made by our representatives, we've got to understand that there's something in them in terms of playing ball. Uh, by them making it possible for corporate corporations or the wealthy to endure uh, you know, uh, uh, access to large sums of money, it ensures more money eventually ends up in their coffers. And so, therefore, they have a vested interest in making sure that the wealthy have um, uh, lot, access to lots and lots of money. Now, the benefits in terms of, ironically, when you talk about real benefits, the benefits of tax, or tax policy resides with the wealthy. Uh, obviously, you know, when you start talking about, you know, uh, $43 trillion that are hidden offshore accounts, that's a lot of money that you could tap into, but but the politicians' resistance to go after that money speak volumes and volumes in terms of just how they are beholden to those people in the positions of power. Now, one of the things you know uh, when you talk about taxing wealthy people, what is good about it, aside from the stimulus effect, because when you're talking about you know trillions and trillions of dollars, then it, it it improves the government's ability in terms of saving. And so when you talk about savings, that's important. Because keep in mind, one of the things the Federal Reserve is currently talking about within the end of the year, they're talking about eliminating quantitative easing. So that $25 billion a month that they print, you know, to give to the wealthy, to give to corporations, that's coming to an end. They have to have new ways in terms of providing money for the wealthy. So clearly uh, this, uh, so, so clearly, you talk about this, this, this tax policy in terms of taxing the wealthy, it's a good thing because you have so much money, they have access to so much money, the, the, the level which you can tax them ensures that even if they end quality easing, you still have enough money to, to not only stimulate the economy, to in fact increase government savings, which is important, because particularly when you start talking about government investments around the world, to be able to actually pay back governments around the world who invest in the U.S. economy. So clearly if you're going to tax someone, it has to be the wealthy people, but for whatever reason, politicians refuse to tax wealth. So the implication for people, working people or poor people in society is not a good one. We've got to fundamentally understand the repercussions of these, of these policies that emanate in Washington, D.C., and understand that inevitably, you know, as things, as the economy falls, someone must take the blame for that. I give you two guesses as to who that's going to be in terms of who's going to be the scapegoats for the, when the economy declines, when it falls. Is it going to be the wealthy or is it going to be poor? Is it going to be A or is it going to be B? 
Well, if you chose B, you're absolutely correct. It's going to be poor people who are going to pay the price in terms of the time of the fall of the economy, even though the wealth are responsible for the fall of the economy. So clearly we've got a work cut out for us. We've got to strategize. We have to have the institution. We need those organizations in the community. We've got, we got to get busy. That's just the bottom line. Fear aside, we have much work to be done. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage everyone you know, to unravel the matrix because unraveling the matrix is key in terms of our movement forward. And without some grand strategy in terms of moving forward, our situation becomes much, much more dire. So clearly we got work to be done, and you have a good night. And you do the same, Brother Haki, and to our listening participants, our listening audience, friends, and supporters. We thank you for allowing us to come home this evening where we could speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. Please join us next week at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time where we will continue part two of our story and our struggle. Until then, let's always strive to go forward ever, backwards never. This has been Africa on the Moon, and Brother Marvin Gaye left us a message, and we're trying to figure the same thing out in which he was trying to figure out during the late 60s and 70s. And that was, what in the heck is going on? We'll see you next week. Hey, what's up, man? Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Pick it light and pick it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see.
is my one, one. Yes, he's my father. Yes, he's my son. I can talk to him because he understands everything I go through and everything I am. He's my support system. I can't live without him. The best thing since life's bread is his kiss, his hug, his lips, his touch. And I just want the whole world to know about my bad brother. And he was taken 
revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because... This country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt, it must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. 
Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the mass of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal no system does the person who betrays themselves goes to the mud but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on if a system fell because of betrayal Christianity would have been finished with Judas at least Judas had the dignity to hang himself yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking, and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism. 
because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go back time. Got my clock right here. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> if you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land, some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine. Needs her, Needs her freedom, Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love, Needs our love, Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom, Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine... Needs her, Needs her freedom, Palestine. Palestine. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine. Palestine. Needs her freedom, Palestine. Needs our love.
People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. Needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. We all agree tonight, all of the speakers have agreed that America has a very serious problem. Not only does America have a very serious problem, but our people have a very serious problem. America's problem is... It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid, so to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together, so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause, the way we live is positive, we don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 one and shot, who's the blame? Headlines, front page, and rap, the name. MC to light, here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before time. Took a brother's life with a knife at his wife. Cause he died of trifling death When he left his very last breath Was I slept to watch his step Back in the 60s our brothers and sisters were hanged How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan And I shouldn't have to run from a black man Cause that's Funky Fresh dress to impress, ready to party Money in your pocket, dying to move your body To get inside, you pay the whole $10 Got safe with a razor blade, take to your car Leave the guns in the crack and the knives alone MC lights on the microphone Bum rushing and pushing, snatching and taxing I can't understand why brothers don't be maxing There's only one disco, they'll close one more You ain't guarding the door So what you got a gun for? Do you rob the rich and give to the poor? Yo, daddy, yo the mouth of why daddy oh do a crime end up in jail and gotta go cause you could do crime and get paid today and tomorrow you're behind bars in the worst way far from your family cause you're locked away now tell me do you really think crime pays even on taking what your brother has you little sucker you're talking all that jazz it's time to stand together in a unity cause if not then you're with soon to be self-destroyed unemployed Race will be lost without a trace or a clue but what to do is stop the violence and kick the science down the road that we call eternity where knowledge is forming you learn to be self-sufficient independent to teach the east is what rap intended but society wants to invade so do not walk this path that they laid it stop this stop shit. Yeah, stop this stop shit. 
the hip hop move, so we gotta get it done and grab what's wrong. The opposition is weak and rap is strong. This is all about no doubt to stop violence. But first, let's have a moment of silence. Swing. Things been stated, re-educated, evaluated, thoughts of the past have faded. The only thing left is the memories of our belated. And I hate it when someone dies to get all hurt up for a silly gold chain by chump. Word up. It doesn't make you a big man. And to one ain't going, just your brother man. And you don't know that's part of the plan. Why? Because rap music is in full demand. Understand? My name is Jeff Ice, a man, not a prankster. I was known as the gangster. But believe me, that is no fun. The time is now to unite everyone. You don't have to be soft to be for peace. Robbing and killing and murdering is the least. You don't have to be chained by the beast. But party people, it's time I release. Hey, yo, here's the situation. Idiocy, nonsense, violence. Not a good policy, therefore, we must ignore. Fight and bust it. Heaven's at the door, so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together before we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call him animal, Mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove them wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take key before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. Pray. The heavy deep, deep in the heart of the matter. The self-destruction is served on a platter. Making a day, not failing to anticipate. They got greedy, so they fell for the bait. That makes them a victim, picked and plucked. New jack in jail, but this the best they ever done. There's no one around, cause in jail, you're a number. They never took the time to wonder about Yes, we urge the merge we live for the love of our people to hope they get along. Getting a point to our brothers and sisters who don't know the time. So we gotta ride. in your head, you know our job to build and collect ourselves with intellect. To revolve, to evolve the self-respect. Cause we got to keep ourselves in check. Or else it's That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, Let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that have that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mosaddegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Got the strip was getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself, 
From the right wing propaganda campaign It's all simple and plain America could stand the game Your president got an African name Now who you gon' blame When they drop the bombs out of them planes Using depleted uranium Babies looking like two-headed aliens Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal Ain't nothing subliminal to it That's how they do it See the game they run Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the skies, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Worked the Chairman Fred and Mark Clark What they do in the dark will come out in the light Like a WikiLeaks site So I guess the crew was right, who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living and Malia are huge fans, but uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you, predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming.
Mentality. 
wondering. 